What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. What does committing to servant leadership look like when you're trying to build an elite team? Hi, everyone. I'm CT, co-founder of Engage Rocket. And to help us answer that question today is Edwin Garcia. So Edwin is the Chief People Officer at PPC Partners, and he's with us in the studio today. It's a great privilege to have him. Uh, welcome to the show, Edwin. Maybe could you start by just sharing a little bit more about yourself and what PPC Partners does? Look, I've been in HR for the majority of my career. I didn't start in HR. I started as a PhD chemist scientist doing research and found my way into HR through recruiting and have had a career of HR and diversity and inclusion at a number of Fortune 500 companies. And now I find myself at a smaller employee-owned company. We have about 2,300 employees throughout the Midwest of the United States and the Southeast. We are an employee-owned company, meaning the only shareholders of the company are employees. And it is a company that works through four subsidiaries throughout the US. We do construction contracting. We do mostly electrical work either it be uh, overhead lines or non-residential work, commercial, hospitals, industrial, those kind of things, where we electrify what customers need us to do. So we do electrical, mechanical, and automation are some of the areas we, we do most of the work. Very nice. And uh, super interesting how you transitioned from a chemist and having a PhD in, in, in that as well and moving into HR. What was that like? It sounds like quite a big change. Yeah, it does. And it almost feels one day I just had a an epiphany and decided to do something else. But it was more of a moderate change. I started off doing research with Eastman Kodak Company and, and doing research very similar to the subject I had when I was going to graduate school and then started getting involved more with the organization in college recruiting, going to college campuses to recruit other engineers and chemists like myself. And then from there, got to experience work around diversity and inclusion, established or helped establish the Hispanic Employee Resource Group at uh, Kodak at the time and really just got more and more involved. So I started writing these things on the margin of the page. And when I came to see the margin had overtaken most of the page. So, so I did a transition while I was in a management uh, development program, a two-year rotation program, and then ended up getting a, a chance to add a rotation to that program in HR and the rest is history. And did you find that, looking back, do you find that your background in chemistry and research, do you feel like it's colored your view of HR and how you run the people organization at all? It does. I make the point of saying I'm not an HR person by training because I do bring things to the table that others don't. I might be missing some others, but to be certain, I bring an analytical perspective on HR. And now we talk more and more about people analytics, given that we do have 
better tools now with human capital management tools. So I bring that. I also look at, from a scientist's perspective, I looked at how we might want to implement things from a business perspective as well. So I'm more analytical. I try to boil it down to what the business would be looking at. And, and I am more of a business person doing HR. So it has colored dramatically the way I think about HR and the way I work in it. Yeah, I can imagine. And I'm just thinking back to my own high school chemistry and the, <laughs> the chemical equations never quite work in the lab as you would expect them to work. <laughs> I think that's going to be quite similar to how people would respond to different policies. and There's a lot of trial and error in the lab, no doubt. And uh, when you bring it down to something you thought you were working with, it ends up that your hypothesis might be different or, or you don't use your whole hypothesis in the lab. And it's similar with people. People are so unique in their own way. And even when we have people that, that share commonalities, everyone's an individual, and that's key to how I view HR. HR shouldn't be about broad strokes or stereotypes, but really recognizing the person where they are and create, and being able to bring out of them that genius that everybody has the potential of bringing to work. I love that. And we were talking about the topic of genius, as you just said, and one of the big things to unleash this genius in our team is to be a servant leader, which is uh, quite counterintuitive if you think about like this, the old stereotypes of a, a know-it-all leader or, or like a Superman leader. And I think the trend is moving more towards, or in our conversation anyway, is more towards that servant leadership. Maybe tell me more about how that works within a team and how that can help unlock the genius that each of the team members have. One of the biggest challenges that anybody has going from an individual contributor to become a servant leader or a leader in general is letting go of what got you there. That Those things that made you successful as an individual contributor and re adapting to your team. So before you used to get evaluated and rewarded by things you achieved yourself. And as a leader, you get rewarded and, and recognized for things your team does, right? So that transition is very critical. And especially when you come from technology like science or, or high-tech environments, the person that was best at doing that work gets promoted to be uh, the leader of that team and then has to go through that transition. It's very challenging for folks because they're thinking about the skills that they had and it's hard to shed those skills, that thing that you have done for so long to be recognized, to then learn some new topics. And I find the concept of servant leadership to be very critical in this, that you're putting the emphasis on the employee, the employee you're looking to serve because in the end, as a leader, you're looking to make sure that employee grows, that they become more autonomous over time, and that eventually they grow to become servant leaders themselves. And, and that's the definition of servant leadership that we use. Let's expand on that a little bit more. So I think it's definitely the right direction to put the employee as the focus mm -hmm. because they, at the end of the day, it's that experience that each employee has and contributes to how much discretionary effort, how much talent they're bringing to the game. What does that mean from a leadership perspective? Because there's a difference between being employee focused and just giving in to everything that employees mm. would want. So how do you strike this balance and walk this tightrope? When I think about the balance between serving an employee and really getting the best out of them to really release their genius into the work environment, it, it can be tricky because if you're not careful, you will encourage employees to not be fully engaged. So the way I think about the challenge for the servant leaders, I focus on you from your growth perspective. 
I'm not focusing on you necessarily from the performance perspective, right? There's a series of things that we expect you to achieve and, and that's table stakes for everyone. And then individually, I modulate or conform my style to make sure that I'm extracting the most value out of you. So for example, many leaders, especially in the high-tech environment or, or technology places, we're, we're not good at giving feedback. And in general, we don't give people the feedback they need to improve. If you don't tell me I'm doing something wrong or not as well as you expect, if you don't give me the feedback, I, I won't know how to improve. And we capture this in one of our trainings. We use the love curve. And I know it's it sounds something that you wouldn't work or you wouldn't be bringing up at work. But imagine for a second a parabola where the open end of the parabola is on the top. And then on the bottom, we have a scale from zero to one or zero to 100 of feedback. And then on the horizontal, it's love. And on the vertical scale, it's feedback. So if you look at that parabola, people that won't have any, you don't feel any affection for them or love in this case, you can provide them feedback like the guy that cut me off this morning on the highway. I give him feedback immediately, right? I honk my horn, did other things, waved at him in different ways. That feedback that I gave to a person I don't love right, is similar to that of a child. If my kid is getting close to this hot stove, I'll give them feedback, I'll pull them away so they don't get injured. So we, people that we love highly will give a lot of feedback. People that we don't love will give a lot of feedback, but those employees in the middle and other colleagues that you have on a day-to-day -day interaction, we tend not to give feedback. They're on the bottom end of the parabola. And what we want people to start thinking about is how do I really approach feedback in a positive way? So I'm giving you feedback for your growth and I might give you feedback for performance as well, but it's always future-focused feedback, three Fs future focused feedback. We talk about something in the future. Hey, next time you try that, why don't you think about this? Or are there other ways we can try that in the future? Instead of whenever you do feedback on the past, it tends to be perceived as negative and comes across as negative. So from a servant leader perspective, we want you to have affection for those that you're working with so that you give them the feedback they need to be successful and don't wait to give them the feedback. Do it right there when they need it. I love how mathematical you, you got with the stuff and the love curve. So essentially it's a U-shaped curve where the, the, the bottom of that U-shaped curve or in terms of amount of feedback that we're giving occurs to people that feel maybe some slight positive effect for rather than like people we love entirely or people we just don't care about. That's really interesting. And I love and, that. And that's the conundrum CT because you see that we're capable of giving feedback even to people we don't know. So why can't we convert that to, to people that we work with that would be mutually beneficial? You want to see people grow and, and you take, you commit to, to them to provide them the feedback they need in, in a way that they can receive it. We're taking the HR Impact Show on the road. As a loyal listener to the HR Impact Show, we'd like to invite you to join us live at the 2024 Transform Conference at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas from March 11th through the 13th. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors, and innovators across industries and backgrounds with a shared passion for people innovation and transforming the world of work. The 2024 Transform Conference is gonna be the best yet. Here's what you can expect. Innovative showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, 300 plus speakers, and more. Join us and let's shape the future world of work together. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you 
This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR impact. And now back to the show. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I love that idea of future focused feedback as well, because it's not saying you screwed up in the past, you're bad. It's here's how you could do better in the future. And here's how you can grow. And it, it reminds me of something that, that I was told once where before giving any kind of constructive feedback to somebody, make sure that you anchor in your own heart that care for them. Make sure that you convince yourself that you genuinely care for this person. And then you enter that conversation and it should flow naturally. In your experience, how do leaders and, and even individual contributors, how do they respond to this? This isn't something that you can solve with a three-day training workshop and then you're done. How do you keep that kind of set on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that, that's a great question again. And let me see if I can share something from the past. Look, I've worked at Dell, Eastman Kodak, Kimberly Clark, a number of other companies. And I've worked on this concept without really calling it servant leadership. It's until I came here where the company already had an affinity for servant leadership, having established principles of servant leadership and really wanting to know from our employees, is the company treating you the way you want to be treated? And are your fellow employees treating you the way you want to be treated? That I really developed this concept or better understanding of servant leadership so I can really drive people to, to think about that. So when I think about the manager's roles, it's really difficult for some U.S. managers, U.S.-based managers, because they have a concept of leadership that it's very different from, for example, Eastern cultures or, or Asian cultures in general, that the leader leads from behind. Here in the U.S., we have this misconception that uh, you fly around with a cape and a superhero suit, and, and that's the leader, the know-it-all, like we mentioned earlier. And, and in the U.S., you almost have to deprogram people so that they understand the concept of servant leadership and then really understand the commitment and the engagement that they would get out of an employee if they committed to that employee first by actually wanting them to grow and develop and eventually become more autonomous and servants themselves. So if we deprogram some of that flying around superhuman leadership expectations and really understand you get rewarded, you get recognized, your job is the team. You can take it to a sport analogy, right? If you have one team member that's not working, you can kick him off from the team or you can invest with them in the off season or during in between games to really improve their skill because they've already made a commitment to your team. And at the end of the day, the, the, the name that's important is the name that's in front of the jersey. We're all working for the same team, in this case, PPC partners, not the name that goes in the back of the jersey, which is the individual's name. I like that, the sports analogy, because you can imagine like the captain of a football team, they're not bossing people around. They're getting their teammates to work together as a team. And as a captain, your job is to, first and foremost, help your teammates to succeed rather than be that superhero captain. And I want to mm-hmm. pick up a little bit on what you mentioned earlier about configuring that the rewards and recognition and the incentives to support this deep programming. How do you do that from a policy standpoint? Is there something that you have done that you feel has this deprogramming effort and that focus on helping leaders to be more aligned with a servant leadership model? So from a compensation perspective, it's difficult to motivate people to become servant leaders because the the results or the milestones or, or the goal would lead people to, to get the goal that 
at any chance or however they can. And, and that would be contrary to the principles of servant leadership, where we really want the employee, the employees to come along with the leader and everyone succeed achieving that goal. So compensation is not the best tool. We do talk about the role of the leader itself and really not talking or emphasizing so much on the technology or the technical expert per, uh, version of the leader, but really how they enable others to act, how they encourage others to act, how they engage their employees. So we follow engagement for sure. We also look at group group goals. We also talk about collaboration between different business segments, business units, operating companies, because that would also show a willingness to look at the whole being successful, not just the individual. And that's really the difference between Western cultures and Eastern cultures is that the, the individual is so strong in the U.S., for example, or Western culture, that, that it's the achievement of the individual. You, you tend to recognize that person scoring the goal instead of really the team and the assist and everything else that got to the goal being scored. So as we think about the leader's role, it's really about recognizing that hard work is there and that the employees just need to be guided, not so much exchanged or dismissed things aren't working out. Because at the end of the day, as a leader, I fail if my team doesn't succeed. It sounds like there are quite a few layers that need to be deprogrammed for the leader. It's no longer how much I'm personally contributing, it's how much can I get the team to contribute. And so that's one layer of deprogramming. And then the other layer is, as a leader, I'm not the one that that needs to be bossing people around and, and pushing people up forward. Uh, I need to enable them to do their best work. How much is HR involved in that transition? Because it almost sounds like you need to coach leaders to be better coaches. Is that something that HR is heavily involved in? So there, there's two ways we get involved in that. First is the selection of the prospective leader. So we have, like many other companies, high potential programs that you actually look at individuals and try to establish what, what competencies they might need in order to succeed as a leader. So it gives you a chance to look at that. The other one is really when we think about who has been their leader, right? Has that person been living the servant leadership uh, values? Have they demonstrated that uh, interest of really having the employee's best interests at heart? And we do, through engagement surveys, try to identify at a individual operating unit how well those leaders are doing with our seven servant leadership questions. And we look at those questions as a way to really highlight people that are doing it very well and then making them be the standard or sharing them as a potential example so that leaders can learn from other leaders. So if you have a good role model that's helping you understand what your next uh, step in your leadership rung is going to be like, and then you have identified the competencies that you need to work on in order to become a more effective leader like feedback, then you have a better chance of maybe not deprogramming, but using what you have to reprogram it to end up in a better place. And I, I think what you said around like making sure that the leaders that you put in leadership positions have the right raw materials to begin with mm -hmm. is so important because that, that is essentially if you start on the wrong footing, it's really hard to backpedal from that. Have there been occasions where you've had really talented ICs, but they just didn't have that raw material and you therefore had to deny them that people leadership position, but somehow were able to 
find a way to keep them in the organization. Is that something that you've ever encountered? I'm sure there's been some occasions like that, CT, but I've been here 10 years now. And in my tenure in the head of HR, we haven't had a, a situation where we had to deny someone, maybe delay someone's entry into leadership until they were able to develop the skills or develop the understanding that those were important skills. Because sometimes when we're talking about the financials and that's all you get quizzed on and not on your people or who's developing or do you have a successor in place to help you get to the next step, our message is not consistent with our behavior and gives us an opportunity to match those two up so that the person then becomes ready to take on the, the role. So we've had situations like that. And then you do get some situations where under pressure, people revert back to their normal behaviors. And then you have to intercede again and try to get them to really think about, hey, is this the way you're going to succeed? Or do we have to realign to our mission and values? If you're giving advice to another chief people officer to be able to build that culture of servant leadership in their organization, how would you break down everything you've said into some framework or a checklist that would help them? This is a challenge. First of all, I would refer them to the Greenleaf Center for Servant Leadership. They have a lot of good resources there. I happen to be currently on the board of the Greenleaf Center, and uh, they're associated now with the Seton Hall University, and you can find them. I would say you have to be willing to provide actionable feedback in a timely way, really beyond the performance feedback to say, I'm committed to your growth and development, your success, because as you succeed, so will I, and so will the team. Start with that, really thinking about the, those principles of servant leadership by underlining the fact that you're gonna be committing to the success of the individual. Secondly, I would then look at establishing open and honest communication more in terms of uh, a psychological safety perspective. And you can go to Harvard Business Review, uh, find some articles on that. But really, if people cannot feel that they can speak up without the uh, risk of reprisal or, or chastisement, they won't engage with you in a way that that then gives you the opportunity to provide future-focused feedback in growing that individual. So from a checklist perspective, I do those three things. Go look at the Greenleaf Center for some materials. Encourage people to have a psychologically safe environment. You're role modeling that, providing feedback in, a, in an actionable way. And that's a starting point. That's great. Thank you so much for being with us today. If people want to find you, what's the best way for them to do I think the best way would be through LinkedIn. There's a lot of Edwin Garcias out there, but not any working with PPC Partners, Inc. I'm the only one. And then you'll see this face on, on my profile. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. And I'd be happy to engage on folks learning more about servant leadership or what we've done here. Great. We'll make sure to put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Thank you so much for hanging with us today. And for those of you listening, I hope you've really enjoyed the show and gotten some really good takeaways to build servant leadership in your organization. Make sure to drop us a review and tune in the next time on the HR Impact Show. I've been CT and it's been great having you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.